You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey everybody, it's me, Rosie O'Donnell. And guess what? It's June, all month, as my Nana would say. (laughs) It's Pride Month, it's Pride Month. And for a very long time, my family would go into the city and... I remember one year when I was about 12, we were in the city and there was the Pride Parade, uh, which is now a march, actually, not a parade at all. Um, But back then, that's what it was called, the Pride Parade. And we went in and there were a bunch of like dykes on bikes and motorcycles and people walking with them because they go very slow and uh, giving out flyers. And this woman came over to me. Now, I'm in my overalls and a backwards hat and Converse sneakers. So I don't necessarily think she was a psychic, but she came over to me and said, here, I thought you might want this. And I remember at 12 feeling so exposed and seen, and yet a little part of me felt happy. Like, oh, these are my people, you know, which is hard to believe now that I have a 10-year-old and I remember myself being 12 so vividly and having these strong feelings about myself and my life and, and, uh, just discovering that I was a gay person and um, moving on from there. It's been quite a journey, I have to tell you, from 1974 till now, (laughs) 12 and up, right? Well, Pride Month is celebrated in June, and it honors the 1969 Stonewall Rebellion, which uh, most people, I hope, know about, probably did not learn about it in school, sadly. But it was a tipping point for the gay and transgendered people who were relentlessly terrorized, beaten, and murdered for being who they were. And here in 2023, we find ourselves at a tipping point once again, where lives are literally on the line, gay, trans, queer. We have become the scapegoat of a faltering GOP who are latching on to a fascist playbook of blame and division. At Stonewall, we stood our ground with our allies and rose up together. We were not silent, and we will continue to do so until we have equal freedom without exception, and we'll do it every year. In the month of June, we highlight it, but for us, it's every day is gay pride. It's very upsetting as a 61-year-old gay woman to see what's happening to the trans community 
with over 500 different bills, 150 of them specifically transgender people are the targets. I really hope that we can make a change in the current pop culture political zeitgeist, that we can take a look at what the far fringes of the right wing are doing to human beings in this country because they think they can. It's very depressing, I have to say. But I believe in this new generation coming up. I believe in the millennials. I believe that uh, gay people who have been around forever and will continue to be around forever, you cannot legislate us out of existence. And that's the truth. So in honor of Pride Month of June, we're going to have all gay people and gay allies this month. How's that? And the first person we interviewed for this uh, wonderful month of of gay pride and celebration is the one and only Holland Taylor. Now, I love Holland Taylor. I've always loved her. What an amazing actress she is, an activist and, and beautiful woman, person, soul. She's pretty phenomenal. And You know, usually when I come in here and and, uh, get on the headphones and sit on the Zoom thing and get everyone ready, um, we start at the, you know, right away. Like the the countdown counts down and then we go. Well, I started talking to Holland once I saw her beautiful face on the Zoom and uh, we started chatting and then we sort of got into the interview, but it starts nowhere. Okay, we were talking about our skin conditions (laughs) The things that older women talk about, perhaps. Uh, we were talking about when we were kids and how we used to get in the sun all the time. And and then we sort of start the... Co- it, it's a weird beginning. That's basically what I'm telling you. It's kind of a weird beginning, but it's a wonderful conversation. And I'm so happy that we get to have Holland Taylor to kick off our Gay Pride Month celebration. And I know it's really LGBTQIA Pride Month, but... You know, us older gays, we just say gay and it's queer inclusive. Everybody, everybody. So that's what we have today, a conversation with Holland Taylor. And I hope you enjoy it. Stick around. Here it comes. I think if you're over 50, we grew up with no sunscreen. I know. Right? Baby oil. Did you do that? Baby oil on your face? Oh, and, and tinfoil reflecting things, you know. Yes, me too. Around your face so that you really just brutalized your face. Those were the days. So, but since the pandemic, I didn't do anything. Well, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Well, I didn't either. In fact, during those three years, Holland, during the pandemic, I think a lot of us didn't take care of our normal things because we were so thrown off. Totally. You know? Well, you can't. I mean, were you going to go to a dentist? I never did. I didn't either. I mean, I took really good care of my teeth, but I didn't go to a dentist. Right. I really am walking around occasionally feeling, um, I think I'm kind of bruised by the whole experience as to life itself. I agree. Because I think we felt a vulnerability that was unlike any other. And I remember when I hike, or I used to hike, and when the pandemic first really set in, I felt the air was dangerous. I worried about the air. And I didn't feel safe anywhere. Yes. Even way up on the top of my hill overlooking the whole city, I thought, I just felt a sense of vulnerability that well, I'm sure can't compare with people in wartime, but uh, 
was just strange and different. But it was close. Yeah, strange. And also, the world was no longer a peaceful place. I mean, it's like dangers lurked. Yes. But there are so many peoples and nations that have been in all kinds of danger for millennia. So for them, it's like, please, it's mm. just one more thing, I, w- I would imagine. Right. But, you know, what got me during it was, um, first of all, the intense loneliness that I didn't realize how much I needed just normal human interaction that was uh, just sucked out of your life. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, you know, like if I'm in a crowd and, you know, I'm going to jostle somebody and you sort of hold their shoulder to let them know that you're there and you're just going to ooch your way around them. Yes. I mean, that kind of, I've always been very, not touchy-feely, but in contact with people. And uh, if I'm going to thank somebody for something, I have my hands on their shoulders or I hold their hands. And I just felt a, a lack of humanity, particularly in L.A. I actually worked a lot during the pandemic, which is kind of amazing, because I have to say the stress, yeah, the stress of, getting sick and causing work a stoppage, which never happened. But, you know, I revived and I did my final run of Anne out here at the Pasadena Playhouse. Yes, I do know, of course. People wanted to do it on the West Coast, so I thought, I've done it in every theater capital in America. I should do it on the West Coast myself and then release it. You know, it's a lot. It is a lot. It's 10 years since Broadway. Mm. And then it's, you know, remember the size of the piece. Right. So doing it was already its own test, but... The COVID fear, that theater, it cost them $480,000 to mount it. And if I'd gotten sick or in the run, they would have lost mm. the entire amount. The stress was just, right. just horrendous. And I think people go on movie sets feeling the same way. They yeah. feel like I could cost this movie studio half a million dollars in three days. You know, Correct. I did two um, filmings during the pandemic. And first of all, the first one just took forever because it was started at the beginning and everyone didn't know what to do. And so it ended up, you know, taking like a year and a half to film right. a 10 episode series. And uh, yeah, and it, but everybody was panicked as well. And you didn't get that thing that I love about sets where you talk to the grip guy and he's just had a baby and you get to know everybody, but you couldn't even talk to people who were not in zone one. Right. Right. And it felt very different than a movie-making experience. I agree. I've done television series and, and the movie and that play and a few other things and flying to New York to do billions. I mean, mm. it's been wild. And I guess it's essentially over in that people are released from the strictures. But of course, it's not over in the sense that I know two people who got it in the past couple of weeks, unexpectedly probably, because they're letting their guard down. Yes, I went to the doctor today, and she told me to get a fifth booster. Right. So she said to me, you know, you're 61, go get it. Yeah. You know, don't mess with this, go get it. So you had your first bivalent, like, in September or October or something, the one for Omicron. Right. They don't give anything else now. I had that one, and... Now you need another. Right. Me too. Exactly. Me too. I had mine in September. I also got my shingle shot two days ago. I've gotten that. Yeah, shingle shot is good. It's funny, as you get older, you know, everything, like, I, I, I realize I see a doctor, like, every two months. Well, <laughs> a different doctor, but, uh, you know, maybe d- different. But as you get older, this is what you do, you know? You try to stay as healthy as you can, and you try to get as plugged in to your doctor so you know what's going on. Every two months isn't bad. Right. Compared to some people that go every couple of weeks. 
Well, yeah, it's it's getting older is not for sissies, as Bette Davis said, and it's really true. It's it's a challenge. And I feel like I've been let off lightly compared to so many of my friends who have really serious challenges. It's mm. life, you know, it's it's almost like you have to be older to be wise enough to withstand what happens to you in aging. So true. And the ultimate aging, which is that you fall over and croak. You know, and you you have to mm-hmm. you have to come to some degree of acceptance of that, or you can't enjoy the day. I sort of discovered that as a bargain this year. I haven't achieved it, but I've discovered that that's the bargain I have to strike. Okay, I accept I am going to die. Yes, and it's not going to be a long time from now. Yes, and so I've got to enjoy the day. And I've always been one who let worry and stuff just fuck the shit out of my days. And I just, we just can't do it. Can't do it. Me too, Holland. Can't do it anymore. No. We'll be right back with Holland Taylor. Are you looking for the perfect move-in-ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below-market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in-ready home and start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. And you know, it's funny, I turned 60 a year ago, so I'm now 61. And I was like, what do I want to do for myself? I'm 60. My mother died at 39. And I thought this is a huge accomplishment. Right. You know, I imagined following in her footsteps to be gone in my 40s or something. And so I turned 60 and I rented a house on, on the beach in Malibu. Oh, great. And um, I got a chef. I lost some weight. I got healthy. Smart. I did more therapy. I did some EMDR with the eyeball thing. Oh, and really? That's interesting. What is that, EMDR? It's for trauma. It's an eye movement therapy. And they show you sort of, a, it's you don't have to do anything. Particularly, they lead you through what you're supposed to do. And it unleashes trauma that you had locked inside of you that you weren't aware of. And it's something in the brain. But you, you, you work with someone. You work with a person. Yes, you work with a person. Have you done any of the psychedelics? Like, have you done psilocybin? No, I'm totally afraid, Holland. I did psilocybin, if you can believe it, that six-hour trip where 
I could, could literally had to be walked. I couldn't walk by my without support after it, and it was wild. And I think, pardon me, the benefit of it is that I had the sense of having done it, you know, having risked something. Mm. And it, it was a very interesting experience. So like in my case, I went because I said I had a lot of fear and dread. I mean, who doesn't? They have a lot mm. of fear and dread because I'm 80. I just turned 80. So I have 20 years on you. Yes, so, big birthday. And so they, you know, the indigenous peoples call it medicine because it treats what you need treated. Mm. And so basically my experience on psilocybin was full of fear and dread. It's almost like, yes, you fear, fear and dread. So here it is. This is what you have to face. And it was wild. Mm. I will do it again. I think it's something people could do every couple of years. It's too big a deal to do, like often, but it's wild. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who did ayahuasca. Not for me. Not for me either. Nothing that involves puking. Nothing involves puking with others. That's what I said. I'm not throwing up in public and pooping yeah. my pants in a tent on a cot. I'm not doing it. Or in private. I'm not puking in private. Exactly. <laughs> not as an elective choice. Not as something you volunteer for. Correct. Exactly. There might be that, you know, coming for other reasons. They say if you're on antidepressants that you should not do ayahuasca, that it does something to the serotonin levels that you're already kind of trying to keep in your brain with taking an SSRI. So yes. I don't know. I just, but I'm never, I've never done anything besides marijuana and beer. Those are my two big vices right there. Marijuana is kind of a downer for me, ultimately. Yeah, you don't like it. So I don't do, I don't, I hardly drink anymore. I mean, it's just like, I think, you know, no, yeah. I don't want one. Thanks. No, because I don't want to miss a day. And I want to feel well. Yeah, exactly. The next day you wake up and, you know, I have a 10-year-old here and she's got a lot of questions. And so from the time I open my eyes, I'm engaged. You know, she's asking me things like... What is her name? Her name is Dakota. She has autism. She's 10 years old. My name's Dakota and I have questions. How divine. Yes, she has lots of questions. And she told me um, about a month or two ago that she was non-binary. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. Whatever you want to be, honey. And then she told me last night that she was asexual. And I said, honey, you're 10. Everyone's that's asexual at 10. That's right. Oh, my God. <laughs> you got to wait till you're in the teenage years yes. to, to oh even think God. about this stuff. But, you know, she's so smart, Holland. She's so smart. It would be, just blow your mind what she asks people and what she thinks of. What are her She's thoughts? Curious. You know? She's curious. Well, are you out in Malibu now, or are you in? Are you from New York? I'm in Malibu. I moved here to do a series two years ago, and the school that she is attending. It's like the number one school in the country for neurodivergent kids Wow! who also have learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. So she also had dyslexia. When we came to the school in third grade, she couldn't read at all. And she used to bring her books to school in New York and pretend to be reading them at lunch because she felt so shamed that she couldn't read. Oh. And now she's reading Harry Potter in, in one grade year. Wow. She was able to read a whole Harry Potter book. Fantastic. That's wonderful. It's amazing. That is wonderful. Yeah. It's just great. So we're out here. We're out here now. And it's such a different way of life. I lived here for 10 years early on in my career. And then when I had my first child, I moved back home so that they could be with their cousins and whatnot. Uh -huh. And then we moved out here for her schooling and for my work. So 
I don't know. It's kind of hard. I have five kids. You know, I miss the other four, but they're grown and out. So it's not like they were hanging at home with me, <laughs> you know. I mean, look what you've done, really. Yeah. What an achievement. I know. Sometimes I think, wow, that was a lot of, that was a big bite to take, O'Donnell. <laughs> you know, but I've loved every minute of it. And you've done a lot of good work during the period, too, amazingly enough, while you were raising those kids. Yeah. You did a lot of things. Did you ever want to have children? Was that part of your growing up? No, I never did. No. I might as well have been the only child because my sisters were considerably older and they were away at school. Mm. So I was left to my own devices a lot, which I didn't find. I mean, it was benign, benign neglect, as they say. And I so I had to entertain myself. But right. I have ADD, and so entertaining myself was really a challenge. I, I, mean, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. Right? I had a lot of things that I was interested in, but I didn't know how to which to do first and how to pick it. And I could not organize my time. I was really kind of helpless in that regard. But I'm used to being on my own, not being unhappy with it, but just being a little bit like, la-di-da-di-da, la-di-da, you know, what shall I do? Mm. And were your parents busy working like people in that time, or were they just not very emotional creatures? Well, it was a really different era. I mean, you're talking the 40s and 50s now. That was a different era. Right. And I don't think parents felt they were neglecting their children by leaving them in their room to play. Right. You know? or you know, I think I was a playpen baby. Because when I was very little, as I say, my sisters were away. But my mother had her own things that she had to do. And so I was safe in a playpen, but amusing myself. And then in my room. And also in that day and age, from a very young age, I just wandered out in the whole neighborhood. Yeah. I just wandered around, a little kid wandering around. But you know, they would think anything of that in the 40s or 50s. Kids are out playing. Go out and play. Yeah. In the 60s, my mother would say, everyone outside and home when the streetlights go on. <laughs> That's so great. So we would be out, five kids, yeah. all day until dinner. Yeah. My mother didn't ever say that, but that's essentially what happened. Yeah. And I think I can sort of vaguely remember having ways to remember where I walked so that I could find my way home. Mm. We had a stream that I walked up that was behind my house. There were railroad tracks that I walked along. You know, there were just different neighborhoods I wandered in that were interesting and little woods and stuff like that. I mean, you would no more let a child do that today than fly to the moon. No, I don't even let her go to the movies with her friends. I don't I don't let them get out of my sight, mostly, because yeah, it's, it's so terrifying, yeah, you know? Yeah, well, it is. I mean, today's world is just almost unbelievable. It really. If you and I had been told as young people what this would be like now, we would simply not believe it. But then if you, you know, I don't want to, we could just scream about politics. We both would go mad. Hmm. But if January 5th of 2020, if you had told me what was going to happen January 6th, I would have said, not on your own life. Not in this country. No, nope, that right. ain't going to happen. And do you remember watching it that day? Totally. Yeah. And, and I, I, with a kind of awe yeah. and a kind of shell-shocked doom, like, I, I can't believe this is even happening. It was pinch me. It looked like a movie. It looked like a yeah. movie set. It didn't look like it was real life. I remember going, what the f- is happening? And so violent. So violent. And and then to try to pass it off to us as a normal day of tourists. It's ridiculous. Don't believe what you're seeing, you know? It's really shocking. I know, really. We shouldn't even go there. Do you remember? You probably don't. Do you remember the first time we met? That we met? God, it must have been a very long time ago, Rosie. It's a very long time ago. It was at Norman Lear's house in Malibu, I believe. 
and he used to have these gatherings of people. And I walked in and you were on the couch and I walked by you and I'm like, oh my God, that's Holland Taylor. And uh, I don't even know if I introduced myself to you, but I remember vividly that was the first time that I was in your presence. Well, And like Sarah Paulson, I was also struck by your beauty. Oh my God. You were very, very, I was very struck. I was captivated by how you looked. I was like, look at her, you know, and you're (laughs) such a phenomenal actress. I've known you for- forever uh, doing what you do best, you know? Well, I feel like we've known each other all our professional lives. I guess not quite all, but most, a lot of it. I remember you doing something so extraordinary for Anne in Chicago. Mm. And, you know, this was a a production, a play, a research of written play, and a series of like eight or nine runs, which had been absolutely blessed, like, you know, Magic in a bottle. I mean, the blessings, the good fortune that has fallen on that play. As if mm-hmm. by magic, uh, I'd be invited to do the Kennedy Center. We played the Kennedy Center right after you. Right, right. Playing yes. that huge theater in Chicago, the Schubert, the old Schubert, which was then called the Bank of America Theater. Give me mm-hmm. a break. But Newsweek, Tina Brown was then publishing Newsweek, the great Tina Brown, one of the great women of all time, mm-hmm. great media person great writer, a great publisher and promoter of things. And she got wind that I was doing this play. And I guess she heard about earlier productions of it in Austin. And she assigned, well, at first it was Marie Brenner, and then it was um, another writer who I adore, whose name I can't make, I've forgotten. The names go first, as you know. (laughs) I do know. (laughs) Anyway, to do a big piece on Anne, before it came to New York, the interviews were before Chicago. So I said, for a piece in Newsweek about my play? Yes. So in Chicago, we had that that was going to happen. We got invited to do your show. You came to see the play, which was an incredible shot in the arm for the play. We practically sold out. I think we did sell out Chicago. Mm, Good. And also, but it was a wonderful interview because you're interested. You're interesting. And you're interested. And it was wonderful to be able to speak nationally for the play. And that was the first time I did until the guy said. Well, what an amazing job as a writer, never mind as a performer. You were channeling Anne Richards, well, channeling her. It was one of the most magical things I've ever seen on Broadway, I've ever seen on live theater. And you were her. It was so unbelievably lovely to feel her presence again. Well, for me too. Because I was friendly with her and... Yeah. Yes, and to get to... But you were doing it, so I don't know if you could feel the awe. Like, I was like, she's back from the beyond. She's back. There she is, you know. I think a lot of people felt that way. Uh, well, each iteration of it, I got closer and closer, and I always continue to polish the text Improve the text, polish, polish, cut, cut, add, add, polish, add, polish, cut. Right through to Pasadena this last time. And by Broadway, I was a notch better than Chicago. And I had done D.C. after that. And then after Broadway, I did it two years later in Austin. That's where it was filmed. Mm. And that's where it's on. It's still on PBS and Broadway HD. Right. Great performances. And then this last run... Cecile came and Alan came and they said, you've arrived. This You mm-hmm. could not, this is just risen to such a level. And it was, it was the first time I felt that very interesting feeling, which was, you was, I only speak this way because you're an actor and you know what I mean. 
if I did another run of this play, yes, it would improve. It would always improve because you always grow. You're always on yeah. your own shoulders. But this particular run, which was advertised to be my last and has to be, I could, I could not do it again. One of the very last performances, I walked off stage. It was a matinee. The audience was particularly keen. It was like a Chicago audience. And right. I walked off, and I had been really on the ball. And I said out loud in the wings, I am satisfied. Oh. I have never felt that way or said that. And I said to myself, walking down the stairs to a dressing room, I could do it better. If we were going to run more, I would do it better. But I am satisfied. That was good enough. Do you think that you knew you couldn't do it again because just physically it's too taxing or because you did feel satiated and you did feel maybe I'm done with this for now, you know? Well, I announced it as the final run of Anne. Mm -hmm. And because the fact is to do a run of Anne is a five, six-month thing. I have two months to learn it and be drilled right. with it. You know, you have to be able to literally stand up and say it. Without a pause, without a... Yes. You know, everything. She's not introspective. You can never stop and think. You must drive the play. You must drive it, and you do drive it. Mm. And so to know something that well requires quite a preparation, and that is how well I knew it. And I was very pleased that I could know something so well at, at, at 80, or then I was 79. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, so I thought, well, yeah. all right, I'm happy with that. And I suppose, you know, if, if some... I don't know what circumstance it would be where I had to give another half year of my shorter and shorter life to do it. I, I suppose I could, but I don't mm. have any desire to. And I've already said that was the last time. And I don't know what city I would do it yeah. in. Or I've done it in D.C. I've done it in Austin. I've done it on Broadway. You know, I've done it in Chicago, a great theater city. And I've done it in Los Angeles. So and San Antonio, that was a great theater. Yeah, it's just a brilliant play, and it's a brilliant performance, and uh, everyone who has seen it is lucky. I saw it many times, because I saw it in New York twice, and uh, saw it in Chicago, of course. Well, and, that's so just wonderful of you. Well, just to watch, it was like a masterclass, you know, in that role, it was pretty astounding. Well, I felt, I just said this to somebody, I felt that it was a mission and a gift to me. I'm not a particularly spiritual person. I don't pray. I don't think of, you know, the divine. But that absolutely fell on me from the heavens to do it. I mean, I had never, I spent three years literally not thinking of anything else to research that and to write it. And then after that, I hardly thought of anything else. I was helping produce it. I was buying props on eBay. I was <laughs> getting dialect lessons. I was doing, you know, so many things. Oh, I remember the name of that journalist, Nancy Haas. Nancy Haas wrote the greatest piece. And yeah, so after that thing with you, yeah. Newsweek comes out this like this huge four-page spread in Newsweek about the I mean, so yeah. things like that were happening all the time to the play. And so it was, I feel, I don't take any of that onto me. I feel part of the thing that was gifted, you know, to our culture to keep that particular American hero alive in our culture. That is one way that she yes. will stay alive in our culture. Yes. I mean, I think PBS is going to, you know, continue to carry it. It'll always be available on PBS. And people are doing it. The rare intrepid yeah. actress wants to do it. Wow. And uh, it <laughs> does get done somewhat, but it's an enormous, it's a, it's a hell of a thing to decide you want to just do. Do you have any desire to write another, even if it's not for you, if it could be for someone else? 
No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I might write something else, but I don't think a play. I didn't want to write a play. I didn't want to write a one-person show. I wanted to do something creative about Anne Richards. And that turned out to be the most obvious and the most obvious thing to do. Right. And it did start with the thought, oh, I could play her. I thought the movie of the week or something about her life from the time she became sober to the time she became governor. Mm. It was a very interesting 10 years. And, and I thought and thought about that, and I never did anything about it. I was literally chastising myself for not doing anything about it. I was driving to work. I was driving to two and a half men. And I literally hit me like a thunderbolt. I've told this story so many times, probably to you, <laughs> that, um, oh, I'm not doing anything about it because it should be a play. Yeah, It's a one-person show for sure. She's dealing directly with the audience. That is for sure what it is. And and then they just, I didn't look back. I didn't look back. And I researched with the family yeah. and with her closest uh, administration, which are also her closest twins. And those of women are now women who are my friends and the matter in my life too. So it was like a gift to me. Yeah, to all of us. Yeah. To all of us. Yeah. Can I ask you what it was like for you when you were younger and figuring out your sexuality? Did you have a moment like I did, you know, oh, if anyone finds this out, it's going to be bad for my career. But in my real life, I was out like you were out. Like, yeah. I would always go to the Emmys with Kelly and, yeah. you know, yeah. I would always like, but people didn't ask back then, which people don't no. believe now when they no, say, they why didn't. didn't you ever say it? I go, well, first of all, no one asked me. They didn't. And, you know, I wonder what I would have said, because, as you say, I, I did not hide my relationships. I mean, I, I think I was about 30 before I had one. But I think that at that age, I was aware. So me, 30, was what in the, the 70s, for Christ's sake. Mm -hmm. And I think that I was out in the world, but I was not so much out in the theater world. Like, I didn't well, you know, I'm at work. I, I'm a, I don't take a, my lover or partner to work, obviously. So, of course. But I think right. I thought if I run in the social circles of the theater, I can't because I thought it would hurt my career. Absolutely, I thought it would. Mm. And, of course, it wouldn't now. No. But it might have then. In any case, it, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think it was depressing. And I think it was something that I just ticked off the box. Don't go out in your theater world with a girlfriend. Yeah. And I wasn't always with someone. I spent a lot of time not with anybody, so right. that didn't matter. Right. So, but I think that I, I did worry that it would hurt my career. Yeah. And nobody did ever ask, because then I was older, and people were not about to ask an older person. You know, like, I always play such strong characters, I'm sure they're afraid that right. they could meet with a strong rebuff. Of course, I am nothing like the characters that I play. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How were your parents about it? Did did you ever discuss your parent with it with your parents, no. or was it sort of don't ask, don't tell? No, it was sort of don't ask, don't tell for a while. And my mother said a few things that made me worry that she would be judgmental. And it was actually about mm -hmm. a male friend of mine who was clearly gay, mm -hmm. and she was upset about him being that, that way. Mm. I thought, mother, I mean. We're in trouble here. Exactly. I think there was a, probably a period of, I don't know, like maybe five years or so where it was don't ask, don't tell. But then, you know, I don't think she was happy talking about it. But then over the course of many years, two of the people I was with, she absolutely adored. And that really 
turned it around. Yeah, it changed things. And then we still didn't talk about direct, because my mother was not terribly direct when the subject was very personal. She wasn't direct about herself either. My two sisters and I begged her to write the story of her early part of her life. And she did finally, and even it was quite um, restrained and polite. Yeah. She just was. She was a different era, a different epoch. Right. And a different manner. That was the times, too, right? The times. That's yeah. how it was. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. People don't really realize that when I was even growing up and knew I was gay from when I was like 12 years old, you know, I didn't necessarily have a word for it, but I knew that I did not want to have a boyfriend ever, <laughs> ever. Like I knew that at 12 years old. Well, I did have a couple of boyfriends. I had a boyfriend in college that we went, continued on for a while after college, and he actually died a few years ago. It was unbelievably upsetting mm. to speak of him no longer on planet Earth. Right. And then I had a few in the theater. My first years in New York, Ron Liebman was one of them. I adored Ron Liebman as a person and as a man and a young director friend. But I, as I say, I was about 29 or 30. I just, you know, I had this experience I got into a close relationship with a woman, and, and I just thought, I didn't think this is it. This is the way it's going to be. I thought this is certainly something I'm going to do now. And then I just, you know, it became, I, I think what happened is, I think the problem with the theater was that I did not go to or did not hang out and did not do a lot of theater things because if I did, I would not have been able to bring whoever I was involved with. So I, when I was not in a relationship, I hung out in the theater and went to the theater hangouts and hung out with my theater friends. But when I was with someone, I did not. So I think that I felt I sacrificed a lot of conviviality with, with actor friends and who were my people. Right. You know, I did that for a while. Yeah. But not forever. You and I, I've read a quote of yours where you said something that I have always thought and said in different words, yours were more eloquent, but that uh, doing Broadway is almost as good as the dream of show business. You oh, know, that's the place where it's closest to what you imagine. That right? is where it's closest, and I like the life, although I'm a little old now. I mean, it's very hard. It's brutal, that schedule. Yes. But I like yes, the life. Is. I like that those two, three, four hours you have after a show in the mm. barn tonight, which is really your own time. You cannot be interrupted. No, but, you know, it's two in the morning. You, you know, you're free. You, you've dispatched your effort for the day. You've had a completion, and you're going to renew it and begin the next day. Mm. And I love the conviviality of it. I love the family at the theater. I love knowing about it. I mean, I read a lot of theater biographies when I was young. So that was just a life that I imagined being a wonderful life. And then you have periods of time where you work doing it, where you could renew yourself. And, you know, I had that life for a number of years, and I, I valued it very much. Yeah. You know, and I did a few shows since Anne, so it goes on. You studied with Stella Adler, yes. the legendary late. Stella I studied Adler. with her late. You know, when I first came into New York, I went to her studio, and the registrar so intimidated me that I never went back. And then about when I'd been already working like 15 years, I worked with a wonderful Canadian uh, classical actor named Louis Turan, who's since gone to his reward, I'm sure. And he said, you of all people 
should be studying with Stella Adler. So I, I went and uh, auditioned, and, and or I actually had met with her. She didn't make me an audition. And I went to her classes, and the first class I was at, the penny dropped, and I thought, holy God almighty, because I had been working for 15 years, so that everything she said was the penny dropping. Right. Everything, because I already had the reality in my, so fully, so that I, I mean, and I looked at the young people around me who were new young students and newbies, and I thought, they're not, they're not understanding what gold this is. They're not understanding that what she's saying is and she because she had a real technique. And you can understand a lot of it in her, her book. Yes. Um, is her book is very good. Because she she was a tremendous intellect and a tremendous charismatic person. Yes, I've read. And it really changed my life so much so that I was on a soap opera, the only one I was ever on, and I quit after one year because I, I wanted she was 80 at the time. And I, I had studied with her very much for, and I took every class she offered for two years. I was in every class. I was like a college student there. Wow. And uh, that, then I got prison buddies, and that, you know, and that was that for a while. Yeah. Um, how long have you and Sarah been together now? We just had our eighth anniversary in January. How wonderful. I know. Is see. it like the biggest gift of a lifetime yes, to fall absolutely. madly in love again? You absolutely, know? the relationship of a lifetime. Well, we've been through a lot together, adjusting, and our age difference causes a lot of problems. Not problems, but I mean, it's something, it's mm. an aspect that, that creates issues that we have to cope with. Um, she puts up with a lot because uh, right. you know, I don't have the energy that I used to. Uh, but I think we're actually very well balanced. And the kinds of things we enjoy, and the way we talk about things that we do together and see. And we're well-matched in some ways, and not well in others, the way everybody is, I guess. Yeah, just like life. So, but it's in working out those things that you really find each other, you know? Working out the, way, the yes. places that you yes. your rough edges chafe. So, I mean, eight years is a pretty good period of time and we have a shorthand it's a pretty good run honey keep yeah. going keep going i love when you grabbed her zipper at that uh, f- <laughs> that fashion thing or whatever you grabbed her by the zipper i was like this is you guys look so happy all the time which makes me so happy to watch pictures of you or videos she has wonderful high spirits and uh, you know I, she's irresistible yeah. and she's so fun she's a very playful personality and i tend to be more doer and inward and she draws me out so we, we, we have a good combination. Yeah. And we were just in France a couple of times, and that was just unbelievable. So thrilling. I read that when you watch her in, in uh, precarious positions on Horror oh. Story, it's, not, mm. it's a, upsetting for you, no, which I it would be for me, mm-mm, too. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I can't. There's some yeah. things I cannot Tough. watch. And uh, when she's in jeopardy, I, I just can't watch it. First of all, she really throws herself into those yeah. things. And she looks vulnerable yeah. and she's exhausted sometimes. So things are hard to play. And sometimes mm. you think, yeah, but all of this is expense of spirit in the name of what? I mean, it depends what the project is, of course. Of course. And you think about actors making enormous emotional sacrifices. And, and you think, well, but they're playing Hamlet. So, yes, they should. Yeah. But you have to think sometimes, what? <laughs> you know, what, what is the material? Right. Yeah. Sometimes I think that too. I'll go on something and I'll be doing something and I'll think, now, why did I think I had to do this again? <laughs> like, what why was I trying to prove taking this part? Uh, what? We're used to giving up our will and giving up our self-protection mm. a lot. And in some ways it brings great things to us because we're very willing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to like actors quite a bit. 
I think actors admire one another. I mean, the cliche things people think about actors, that they're jealous and suspicious of each other. Actually, I don't see that. I see... I don't see it either. I see actors being very supportive of each other. And boy, if... If I love an actor, they're, they're going to know it exactly. Same with me. If I love someone's performance, I'm going to shout it through the streets because... Margot Martindale. Oh, she's fantastic. You know, I just saw Sean Hayes. Sean Hayes oh. in Goodnight Oscar. Oh, I hear that's extraordinary. It was one of the most brilliant performances I've ever seen by a guy on a stage. I was absolutely blown. That's in New York now, right? New York, blown away. Okay. I was completely blown away. We're about to go. I will make sure we see that. You must see it. I heard that it's one of the greatest sing- solo performances ever. It's extraordinary. It really is. Yeah, I want to see it for sure. You have been delightful. I thank you so much for coming on this. Rosie, you're the best. Oh, honey. I just love getting to talk to people I admire so much, and I admire you. Your whole career, the way you carry yourself in the world. It's a brilliant thing. really is, Alan Taylor. Rosie, thank you. You know, I think the world of you. The world. Okay, well, thanks for doing this, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much for having me. Alan Taylor will be right back with questions from the audience. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Wasn't Holland Taylor fantastic? I mean, I just love her. Hey, we got some questions from you guys. Here they come. Hi, Rosie. My name is Anne. I'm from Missouri. I am a longtime fan and loving your podcast. These interviews are a lot of fun and the highlight of my week to listen to. I am also a librarian, and I love to read and love to give book recommendations. And so I was wondering what book you might have read lately that you would recommend Or if there's just a book in general that you think everybody should read. Thanks. Well, thank you, Anne. What a great question. I love to read. I really do. I mean, I don't 
find as much time for it now as I used to when I was younger, but I did just finish John Irving's book, The Chairlift, and it's a big old book. It's like a thousand pages. And, you know, I love all of his books. The Cider House Rules had a profound effect on me when I was a young reader and uh, Prayer for Owen Meany and Hotel New Hampshire. There were so many John Irving books that totally stayed with me and had a, a really profound impact, as I said, on my growing up and my perspective on the world. And I read that he lived in the Hamptons. So when we were going out to go to the nightclubs there and, and the Hamptons like OBI, which is the Oak Beach Inn, um, I used to look for John Irving everywhere I went. I also thought he was one of the most handsome men I had ever seen in my life. So I'm so happy that in his later years now, he has written uh, another wonderful, beefy, beautiful novel. And I would say he's one of my favorite authors of all time. Another one of my favorite authors is Pat Conroy. Any and everything that Pat Conroy wrote, I adored. He was such a voice of the South and so beautiful in his prose. I just feel like any book you can get of Pat Conroy, you should get. And another one I'm going to just pick out of the air, Anne Rice, who I adored as a person and a woman, and I love as a writer. And um, I used to wait in line to get her to sign my books. But there's one book that she wrote that I thought was just spectacular, and it's called Feast of All Saints. It's just a story about the Creole culture in New Orleans, and it's absolutely riveting, and I, I loved it so much. I mean, there are so many books that I, memoirs that I, I, I will consume memoirs voraciously. Uh, I, I just can't get enough of memoirs. But for now, I, I would pick those, and, and thank you for being a librarian, and you know, you guys have the fight coming up with the... Uh, you know, the radical people who want to ban books and knowledge. I mean, boy, are we going backwards. We are really going backwards, America, and we got to stop this. It's too, it's too uh, reductive, and uh, it's too bigoted. It's too asleep, frankly. And nobody wants to go backwards. Nobody wants to do that. So, so thank you, librarians, you, Anne, and every librarian across the country who has a love for books and a desire to protect them. And read banned books, people. That's my recommendation. Read banned books. Thank you, Anne, very much for the question. And I think we have another question today. Hit it. Hey, Ro. My name's Jill. I'm calling from Long Beach, California. I've been a fan of yours for a really long time, since A League of Their Own, when you were besties with Madonna, because I, too, was besties with Madonna in my mind. <laughs> and now I listen to your podcast every week. And that's been super fun. So thank you for that. I'm calling in because my wife and I have a six-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. And my six-year-old was recently asked by one of her classmates how she could have two moms. And she sort of froze. She didn't know how to respond. And we've been, I think, preparing her for these types of questions her whole life indirectly. And, you know, we have a fantastic group of lesbian moms with their kids who are all around the same age. And we get together several times a week, go to the beach, we have dinners, we have dance parties, we do lots of fun stuff. And she knows that it's totally normal to have two moms, totally normal to have two dads. 
Same thing for a mom and a dad or being raised by grandparents or she knows that there's all types of different families, but she's never had to defend her family. So I'm just wondering if you ever dealt with that with your own kids and what sort of advice you gave them and and how to answer those questions without feeling defensive or feeling like your kids were singled out or, you know, different. Thanks, Ro. Love you. Thanks, Jill. That's such a great question. And I think it's wonderful that you have a lot of other gay families in your orbit so that your kid can see uh, the normalcy that it's not simply her. But she is different than than most of the kids in her class in that she has two mommies. And when Parker asked me that, I think he was five, right around that age, he said, how come I don't have a daddy? And I said, because you have a mommy who wants another mommy. So if I there was a daddy, you wouldn't have me as a mommy. We're a two-mommy family. And some people have a mommy and a daddy, and some people have two daddies, and some people have two mommies, and some people have even more. There's step-parents, there's bonus parents, there's all kinds of ways. But what I told my kid was just the fact, you know? If I was your little girl, I wouldn't be defensive, I wouldn't be, I would just say, oh, because I have the kind of mommies that don't want to marry a daddy, they want to marry mommy, so they fell in love and got married. And they had us, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's as simple as that when they're kids. You know, they don't need big, long discussions. I think they just need something that they can say. You know, my kid also asked me that when they were little, my kids, about, you know, why was I adopted? You know, and I said, well, there was only one thing that your tummy mommy knew, and that's that she wasn't ready to be a mom. And so God looked inside, and he found your right mommy, and that's me. And we're a good match. You know, so I would give them kid-like answers that would seem to satisfy the uh, brain of a, of another six-year-old. So, so that's what I would do. I, I I would just say that, and and it seemed to have worked. My kids definitely used that. I heard them telling kids that sometimes uh, when we had play dates, like you know, when when kids first started coming over when they're five or six, and and uh, they go, "You have two moms." And I remember Blakey going, yep, isn't that cool? (laughs) It's like, yeah, it is kind of cool. But, you know, you are going to be different. Listen, if you're gay in society, you're considered different because you're not the majority. They say 10% of the population is gay. I believe it's a lot higher than that. But uh, that's what the statistics show. And they are going to be different or singled out because of that, especially in the culture as it is now, where there's the vilification of anyone gay or different. And it's it's very scary and tragic. But I would say to the kid, just what I told you, I got a mommy that wants another mommy and they fell in love and they got married and that's all okay. So I hope that works for you and uh, good luck to you and your family and your kids and, and just raise them in the light, raise them in the truth, tell them what's going on and understand their feelings. You know, it's not easy to be, different in your first grade class. So have compassion as as we move on through raising them, right? That's my little grandmotherly advice. I hope that you like it. <laughs> Thanks for uh, writing in, Jill. I appreciate it. And if any of you want to leave a voice memo, just like Anne and Jill did, I would love to hear from you. We pick a couple of questions every week and we do them here on our podcast. 
So all you have to do is write to onwardrosie at gmail.com and leave a little voice memo for me, and we might put it on the program here. Hey, thank you, everybody. Guess who's up next week? One of my favorite, favorite, favorite shows on TV is Somebody Somewhere. It's on HBO, and it stars Bridget Everett with a stellar cast, perfectly cast show, a beautiful, beautiful show on HBO. And Bridget, who is an LBGTQIA queer ally and always has been her whole life and career, she made a, a living for a long time as kind of a bawdy cabaret singer, and now she's killing it as an actress on HBO. So Bridget Everett will be on the podcast next Tuesday. Look for that on Onward, right here on iHeart. Thank you, everybody. We'll catch you next week. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.